Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. Isaiah 63, starting in verse 7. We, we read this passage a few weeks ago when we were talking about the uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it's actually worth looking at it again because how do you know that God is your Father? Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, because of the uncreated grace, because God has given us his spirit, that's how we know that he is our father. There's a way in which these themes come back together. So I I thought about changing up and using a different passage, but then I was like, you know what, it works so well. Let's hear it again. So hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 63, starting in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry. We sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. 
But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord. The the Apostle John tells us, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. There's a way in which John is very much reflecting on Isaiah 63 and 64. Isaiah says, God, you are our Father. And he keeps talking about how God led his people by his Spirit. The way that you know that God is your Father is because He has given you His Holy Spirit. Now, let's just be clear. The the Spirit of God is not a mystical, spooky feeling. I I think probably with as as many movies and books that are out there right now that sort of do all that mystical, spooky stuff, okay, that's got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. That's got to do with all the other sorts of spirits that are in the world. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. He is a person. So it's not, it's not it is some mystical force. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. How do, you, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? If you're waiting for some mystical, spooky feeling, it's not going to happen. That's not what the Holy Spirit is. It's not who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, I have to catch myself because it's so pervasive in our culture that somebody once came up to me and said, Pastor, did you really just refer to the Holy Spirit as it? I was like, did I? Sorry. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? Well, John tells us, actually, right before he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, John tells us how we know. He says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So if you confess Jesus is Lord, then you have the Holy Spirit. Because you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, this, this is what Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah 63 and 64. Isaiah is recounting the, the steadfast love, the chesed of the Lord, his covenant faithfulness, his loyalty to his promises and to his people. And when God saved Israel from Egypt, he had said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is called the firstborn son of God. But only a few times in the Old Testament do the prophets address God as our father. 
here in Isaiah 63-64, Isaiah is referring to the Exodus and the conquest. And he says, you are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. But while the holy people held possession of the land for a little while, now the adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. Israel has become like the other nations, no better than the Gentiles. That's why chapter 64 starts with the plea, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah recognizes that Israel's failure means only God can save. It's only if God does something to fix this mess that we're going to get out of this. You were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even when we do our best, it's not working. We are helpless before you. In ourselves, we have nothing by which we can stand before you. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. Isaiah says, you are our only hope. We are the clay. You are our potter. We all are the work of your hand. We need you, O God, to act. We need your spirit to come. And we are utterly incompetent to make it happen. It's worth noting that the Lord's Prayer begins precisely where the, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed do, with our Father. Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his, his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Some people really struggle with calling God Father. Maybe, maybe your father died or, or disappeared, or you really didn't have a father in that respect. Or maybe your father treated you badly. And it became really hard to think of father as a, as a good thing. Many people have a good reason to be deeply suspicious of fathers. But rather than say, oh, therefore get rid of father, I would suggest 
This is why calling out to God as our Father is so important. We think about, take a different word. Maybe you had a bad experience with love. Maybe somebody used the word love to mean something that it wasn't. Maybe somebody did the horrible things and called it love. Does that mean you get rid of the concept of love? Does that mean you'll never be capable of experiencing love? No. You know what love is. And it makes you angry, rightly angry, that someone perverted love and twisted that word into the manipulation, the service of manipulation and fear. And in the same way with father. The reason why you are angry at your bio dad is because you know what father means. And that man was not father. Fathers protect their children. Fathers comfort their children. Fathers are able and ready to help their children. So if, if your father was not a father to you, then it's okay to say so. He may have begotten you, but he wasn't your father. So when we speak of God as father, it's because he has revealed to us what father really is. Our, our shorter catechism has a lovely way of saying this, that the, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father who art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a Father able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. The, the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, actually contains three points. We might as well use them. It's our Father in heaven. What does it mean that God is Father? It's our Father in heaven. What does it mean that He's a heavenly Father? And our Father in heaven. The importance of our Father, that it's corporate, not just singular. And the first thing to remember in, in prayer is to remember who you're talking to. Uh, we saw last time from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 that, that God is not impressed with making a big show, with, with using lots of flowery words. God knows what you need before you open your mouth. But, like any good father, he still wants to hear it from you. If you think about, you may know what your child needs, but you like hearing it from your child to actually come to you and say it. We read in John 1 that, that something of what it means for God to be Father. John 1, 11 to 13 says that, that when the Word became flesh, He came to His own place, the land of Israel. But His own people, the people of Israel, did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a way in which John here at the beginning of his letter is setting out the central theme that he's going to explore throughout the whole Gospel of John. How is it that we become children of God? How is it that we get to say, Our Father? And we become children of God because of who Jesus is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, the, 
the word only begotten, the monogenes. It, it, it can be translated only begotten or only or unique, but particularly here where the word is being used in the context of begetting or bearing children, only begotten is very much the, 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 the idea. John 1.18 points to this, that no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John's point in John 1 is to say that the Word, the Word who was in the beginning with God, is the Son of God. He has always been Son. The Father has always had a Son. The, the Son has always been the Son of the Father before even the Incarnation. He has been, the Father and the Son have been in, in communion with one another for all eternity as Father and Son. He is the only begotten God. And I realize only begotten God sounds like a strange phrase, but it's showing us, it's showing us that this is who God is for all eternity. God has always been Father, just like the Word has always been Son. So when, when you come to the Father in prayer, you are coming to the one who has been Father forever. This is why all of us are convinced that Father is supposed to be something good. I mean, everybody, you think of, you think of the, little, the little child, the infant, who just has this utter confidence in their father and their mother. Just complete and total trust. We know instinctively from the time we're born that this is where we belong. And it takes something pretty awful to mess that up. But the reason why we think that Father needs to be something good is because Father is something that God has always been. It's also, God is love. And so that's why we think love should be something good because that's who God has always been. Because in the Father, love and justice meet. In the Father, righteousness and peace kiss because He has always loved His Son. Therefore, He knows how to love and care for you. He is able and ready to help us. And then you see that in all of human history, this is part of what God has been trying to show us. God creates Adam and Eve in his image. He creates a son. Adam, as the son of God, had title to the inheritance of his father until he forfeits it all by his sin. Abraham was called to leave his father's house and go to the land I will show you, a land that he and his seed would inherit. And as we saw earlier, God called Israel, my son, my firstborn. But then, as we saw from Isaiah, when Israel sins, when Israel failed to be the faithful son of the father, God brought judgment on them. And now God called David. You can all see this sort of narrowing cycle from in Adam, there's all mankind is the son of God. In Abraham, there's one family. In Israel, it's one group. And in David, it's one king. In fact, this will get all the way down to until that's why Jesus comes, because Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He is the second Adam. And because he is the, because he is the eternal son of God, who then also becomes the son of God as in his incarnation, and then in his death and resurrection, 
Jesus becomes the Son of God who sits at the right hand in glory. And, and this is what Isaiah had foretold. Isaiah is speaking of the need for a new creation in chapter 63. Uh, couple chapters earlier in Isaiah 61, Isaiah spoke of the coming of the year of the Lord's favor, which Jesus will quote at the beginning of his ministry. Isaiah is, is saying, Israel's going into exile. But even after they return from exile, their hearts won't be fundamentally changed. Something new needs to happen. God must do something new. There must be a new creation. It's not enough to just start a new kingdom on earth. It's not enough to just start a new city on earth. The kingdom of God, the city of God, must be established by God's own act, by the work of the anointed conqueror who will bring justice and peace to the earth, which so far all of Israel's kings have fallen woefully short of doing. And Isaiah pleads with God to do this based on what he's promised. And notice, Isaiah said, it's no longer because of Abraham. Abraham doesn't know us. Abraham has disowned us. It's not because of Jacob. Jacob is repulsed by his children. The people of God have utterly failed. When we sang from from Psalm 103, sort of, to those who keep his covenant. (laughs) What if they don't? How will God restore his holy and beautiful house? How will God restore his son to his rightful place at his right hand? Well, if God were just an earthly father, then we would be doomed. But God is not just an earthly father. He is a heavenly father. And that's the second point we need to see from the preface of the Lord's Prayer. That we pray, yes, our father... But we pray, our Father who art in heaven. Both Isaiah 63 and 64 and Psalm 103 show us the importance of praying to a Father who is in heaven. Why, why is heaven so important to your prayers? Or Maybe I should drop back a moment and ask, is heaven important in your prayers? Do you do you pray to a heavenly father? Or do you talk to God as though he was down here on earth like the rest of us? Think about how Solomon prays at the, dedic- at the dedication of the temple. At the dedication, you know, if, if ever there was somebody who might have been excused for thinking, ah, God lives here on earth with us, it would be Solomon. He builds a temple and the glory of the Lord fills the temple that Solomon made. So, hey, God's living right here, Right? But no, Solomon says, heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon never imagined that the temple was God's actual dwelling place. So, do you pray to a father in heaven? Or do you pray to your buddy next door? So why does it matter that we pray to a father who art in heaven? Well, Think about, think about where God is, who God is. Heaven, you know, the place where God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Heaven is the most important place in the world. I mean, heaven is the most important place in your life. Because heaven is where God reigns. Heaven is where Jesus is seated in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
you may be so busy, sort of caught up in the rat race of life, running from one thing to another, you may think, I I don't have time to pray. But when you think that way, you're you're really saying that you're, you're so busy taking care of your life that you don't need God. And if you pray to a, a God who is just all bound up in the earthly things, that's sort of like the gods of the pagans. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, if we believe that he died, that he rose from the dead, if you believe that he ascended to the right hand of the Father so that Heaven is where our Lord Jesus sits, ruling all things as King of kings and Lord of lords. Then, then why do we spend so little time praying to the only one who can ultimately do something about our situation? In fact, when things get busy, when things get... That should actually lead us to pray more. And pray constantly. And pray in the middle of everything. Because when all those things are happening and everything is crashing down around us, that's where we need to be reoriented to heaven all the more. I find that only, really, in prayer does the pace of life seem proper. Because when I see the glory of Christ, then I see all these things in their proper perspective. And, and don't, don't think about this as, oh no, got one more thing to do. Prayer is not actually a thing to do. It, it's, it's partly why I don't, I don't like talking about prayer as a, a relationship with God. Uh, it seems to downgrade prayer to being simply a conversation with a friend as being another earthly thing that we do. When we make prayer a thing to do, it becomes one more thing on our earthly lists. When we think of prayer as a relationship, it's again, it's a, it's an earthly thing. But if prayer is a heavenly thing, then prayer is, well, an effectual means of our salvation. Prayer is a part of our worship, which actually this is where when we, you know, what we heard from the, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 earlier. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Loving God isn't something you do in addition to the other things you do in your life. <laughs> Loving God is the thing that you do in your life. In the same way, prayer, and ultimately, the two, the two go hand in hand, side by side. They're really the same thing. If you're loving God with your whole heart, then you are praying without ceasing. Now, I realize this is where, <laughs> as sinners, we don't do so well at this. And that, but that's where, that it's worth remembering that when we are loving God properly, then we are in constant communication with Him. Now, if, if you're wondering, okay, how do I do this? Well, in practice, it can be very useful to do things as we've been talking about, like, you know, take, take the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is, is an excellent sort of example or model or pattern. Uh, so start with the words, Our Father who art in heaven. And spend a few moments meditating, reflecting, and expanding on that. 
like Psalm 103 does, with God as the creator and ruler of the heavens, the earth, and the seas. And then you take each phrase of the Lord's Prayer and work through it like that. Or praying through the Psalms, whether, whether you can take a story psalm like Psalm 89, uh, which, which, or, or one that has, whichever, whichever, I mean, whichever psalm catches your eye that particular day, or you can just walk through the psalms, uh, and as you, 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 probably you'll find at different times in your life that different psalms really stick out to you. That's fine. Jump on those. Run with it. Start by literally praying the psalm, but then start improvising on it and taking the phrases and and j- connecting them to your life in Jesus. Because, of course, Jesus is the one who fulfills all the psalms. And so as you see him in the psalms, you start to see yourself more clearly as well. Or for that matter, use other passages. Isaiah 63 and 64 is a, it would be a marvelous place to spend time in prayer. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Isaiah gives us this heaven-centered picture of our heavenly Father. Now, in one sense, when when Isaiah speaks of you know, look down from heaven, uh, there's there's an image throughout Scripture that that portrays the, the picture is that that big blue dome over us is sometimes called heaven. Um, but of course, as Isaiah as, as Solomon pointed out, heaven of heavens cannot contain you. I mean, there's, there's a way in which the earthly heavens refers to that big blue dome, but then there's the heaven of heavens, which is the invisible heavens where God dwells, and even that can't contain him. <laughs> but then, but the picture is, from, from an earthly standpoint, the picture is that God's sitting up at the top of the big blue dome, and he's looking down from heaven upon the earth. And... That's partly why the temple was built the way it was, with, so that the earthly temple would be a microcosm of the macrocosm of the way the world was made. So the visible heavens, the sky with its hosts of sun, moon, and stars, reflects something of the invisible heavens, the spiritual realm with its host of angels. All of these created things are expressing in creaturely form something of the very presence of God himself. You may have noticed in Isaiah, he, uses, he speaks of the holy and beautiful house and the holy and beautiful habitation. Because the, the holy and beautiful house, the temple that Solomon built, was supposed to be an earthly picture of the holy and beautiful habitation in the heavenlies. Now, the problem, the problem is that the earthly doesn't look much like the heavenly because of sin. Israel, the son of God, has failed to look like his father. Even Abraham and Jacob have disowned their children. Abraham doesn't know us. Israel does not acknowledge us. So that Isaiah says, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Israel is disowned and disinherited. And yet Isaiah still, he's got no place else to turn. So he says, he still dares to call God our father. It's actually one of the very, very few times in the Old Testament where somebody calls God our Father. I mean, it's something that is striking when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount about our Father in heaven. He's saying that what Isaiah had spoken of in Isaiah 63 and 64, that God would rend the heavens and come down, that's why I'm here. That's who I am. God is called Father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. And nine, of, nine times, Jesus calls him our Heavenly Father. 
God is the Heavenly Father who will make right all of the failures of earth. And our Heavenly Father shows us how we ought to live. And so when we come to God in prayer, we must come with all holy reverence and confidence because our Father does see all things, He knows all things, and He's able to do something about it. And that brings us to the final and, if anything, the most remarkable thing about the opening of the Lord's Prayer is that this Heavenly Father is our Father. It's worth noting that no psalm ever addresses God as our Father. Psalm 89 is, is the closest when the, the, the Davidic king cries out, You are my Father! But in the Psalms, God is never addressed as our Father. Now, it's, it's, it's curious in one sense, given that God had said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Why are there not many references to God as our Father? I would suggest that it's in part simply because Christ had not yet come. And, and yes, while Israel is saved by the same atoning sacrifice that we are, there's a sense in which until the coming of the Son of God in our flesh, Israel's relationship to God as Father was somewhat compromised, you might say, to put it mildly. And that's where you know, I, I just said that, it, sure, in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the phrase, Our Father, all the time. But I, I love pointing out that in John's Gospel, John does something a little different. In John's Gospel, God is referred to as Father. Jesus refers to God as Father more than 80 times. In his final discourse in chapters 10 to 17, over a course of eight chapters, Jesus refers to God as his Father 65 times. I and the Father are one. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me. In all of this, Jesus highlights his own unique relationship to the Father, or my Father. Jesus calls God Father in a way no one else ever had. And then, after the resurrection, when Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus in, in the garden, Jesus says to her, Go to my brothers and say, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Jesus is the one who, because he is the unique Son of God, because he is the only begotten Son of God, when he joins us to himself by his Holy Spirit, now we come back around to why is the Holy Spirit so important? Because in the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus gives us the, the uncreated grace, the very, the very presence of God himself, when, when God himself comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit, when God himself comes to us and unites us to himself, that is why we can say, Our Father. Because... He is the Son of God. Therefore, those who are united to Him become fellow heirs with Him. Because He is the natural Son of God, we who receive the spirit of adoption are adopted as sons. As Paul says in Galatians, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
And so if God is our Father, then as children of the same Heavenly Father, we should be praying with and for one another. We have been made one family. We have been joined together in one in in the family of Jesus. Over the years, some of that gets expressed as we, you know, we, we talk about uncle and aunt sometimes. Um, some, some churches, you know, everybody refers to each other as brother and sister. It's not, a question, it's not a matter of how we address each other. It's a matter of how we live. Do we live as brothers and sisters in the, in the family of Jesus? I, I remember one time a young lady came, came to MCPC and said, Wow, you guys are really like a family. And I was like, yes. But remember that when you're a family... You bump into each other. When you get close, unfortunately, we're still sinners. And when you get close, you'd say things, you do things, you, you get hurt, you feel hurt. And it's something which worth, it's worth saying out loud because, because when you feel the, the ouch of being close to someone, then it's a good thing to talk with them about it. Because you'll find that most of the time, the other person wasn't actually trying to hurt you. So that also means when you go and talk to them, uh, if you go to them and say, you tried to hurt me, okay, now you just put them on the defensive and that gets more challenging. They still should handle it well, but if you go to them and say, ouch, that hurt, then usually the response is, oh, that's not what I meant. Now, sometimes it was what they meant, but you know, sort of, but that, then you have to deal with. But, but that's where when you start by saying, "Ouch, that hurt," then it provides a context in which it's much easier to then say, "Oh, I'm sorry, that was not what I intended," because so often the hurts that we that we inflict on one another because. We are all really good at this. We are so oblivious to our own. Our own, the way we, we step on other people's toes, but then we notice it really fast when they step on ours. I mean, that's, <laughs> but that's where we just need to be, we need, we need to recognize that. And then recognize that as we walk together as the family of Jesus, yeah, we're gonna bump into each other. There are gonna be hard things, and we need to have the humility to recognize that, yeah, we need to, we need to repent when we have unintentionally hurt others. Sometimes sometimes we tend to think that, oh, sin is just, if you try to do it, then it's sin. Sometimes, I mean, there, there's like a whole category of unintentional sins in the Bible. Where, because if it's not stemming from love for God and neighbor, then it's, if it's, if it's my ignorance, is ignorance actually... I mean, if, if I'm willfully ignorant, if I'm sort of like, well, I don't, I don't want to know, <laughs> well then, I'm actually culpable for staying out of it. It's when you start getting into the, that whole category of, of, you know, we, there's the, there's the, the sins of commission. Those are the ones, oh, I, I know I did that. But the sins of omission? The things I left out that I should have done? Oh my goodness, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Literally. Because I don't know. So, that's, wh- that's why Isaiah had that whole line about our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. <laughs> sort of like, I mean, if you, if you try to make sense of it all like that, you're, gonna, you're just going to, yeah, it's a mess. But, but you can go to a Heavenly Father 
who will hear you. And this is where I would encourage you, when you're having those conversations with one another, pray with each other and for each other. It, it may be, I'm not saying you've got to, you have to solve it before you pray. Sometimes it's a good idea to start by praying. <laughs> Other times, it's like, okay, we started down the path. Okay, look, can we just pray? Let's just, how, we, need to, we, need, we need somebody who can help us here. So let's pray. Uh, it's something I've really appreciated about my friend David Covington because he would just regularly, in the middle of a conversation, be like, okay, I can't handle this anymore. We've got to pray. <laughs> it's just like, just, that's, I, I, I got to go to the one who actually knows how to handle this situation because that one's not me. And it's something that we, it, because we come to a heavenly father, uh, we may draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father able and ready to help us. And that we should pray with and for one another. So let's pray. Lord God, we come to you because you alone are the one who can handle all these situations. That as, as we deal with the, the, the struggles and the challenges of, of walking together in this, in this age, we come to you because you alone are the one who knows all things and can, can deal with them because you have made all things right in the death and resurrection of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for your great kindness. And have mercy upon us, we pray, that we might heed your voice and come to you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.